We continue to make our way uh, through the book of Luke, and we are at the end of chapter 22 this week and into chapter 23. So if you will turn there, starting in verse 66 of Luke chapter 22. If you need a Bible, there should be one under your seat or the seat next to you, and we'll be on page 574 with one of these. Otherwise, you can turn, click, swipe, tap, or otherwise get to Luke chapter 22. And we'll read down through verse 25 of chapter 23. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, 
but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This week, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals pushed pause on the execution of Rodney Reed. In 1996, 23 years ago, Stacy Stiles was murdered, strangled, and left on a rural road. DNA recovered from her body pointed to Mr. Reed, and he was charged with rape and murder. He pled innocence, but he was convicted and sentenced to die. For his part, Mr. Reed maintained that he had been in a relationship with Ms. Stiles, though she was engaged to another man, a police officer named Jimmy Fennell. That would explain his DNA on her body, he argued. Fennell, Fennell's then ex-fiancee, uh, the ex-fiancé, Jimmy Fennell, was himself put in jail a number of years later. In, in 2008, he wound up pleading guilty to kidnapping and unlawful sexual conduct with a woman that he held in custody while on duty as a police officer. The victim alleged that the unlawful sexual conduct was, in fact, rape. This violence demonstrated by Fennell put the spotlight on him for the murder of his ex-fiance and lent credibility to Mr. Reed's story. In fact, a fellow inmate of Fennell's has assigned a sworn affidavit that Fennell confessed to killing Stacy Stiles because she was having an affair with Rodney Reed, a black man. Reed was scheduled to die on November 20th, and his sentence was halted on November 15th, and the trial court was ordered to reconsider this evidence and much more that has come out since 1996. And while it remains the decision of Texas judicial system to make a final determination, there is a growing belief that Rodney Reed is innocent of the 1996 murder and has been held unjustly for 23 years. This world is full of injustice. It's part of the curse that we have brought on this world with our sin, our rebellion against God. How do we live when an unjust pronouncement is made against us? How do we carry on when the world feels stacked against us and it seems like there's no fairness left, when we are maligned or defamed or slandered or even declared guilty? of a crime we didn't commit. Well, Luke 22, 66 through 23, 25 looks at a series of trials, legal trials that Jesus underwent during the final hours before his death. And for those who are Christians, Jesus models how to endure injustice in his identity, his innocence, and his sovereignty. Let's get into that. In this passage, Jesus effectively has three trials. And the first one, he goes on trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. That's what's meant by the council here. There were little Sanhedrins in most significantly sized Jewish towns, local councils that made rulings on particularly Jewish affairs, so mostly religious affairs. They didn't have the legal authority of Rome under whom uh, the Jews were under occupation. Uh, but this in Jerusalem was the great Sanhedrin, sort of the high court of Jewish life at the time. 
It was composed of leading men of Jerusalem among the priests and the scribes. From a religious standpoint, their decision was final. The role of the Sanhedrin was here in theory to determine if Jesus' message and activities were contrary to the Jewish faith. Of course, as we've seen throughout most of the book of Luke, the religious authorities have generally already made up their minds about Jesus. In that sense, this doesn't really feel like a real trial. It feels like they are looking for a conviction, not looking for truth. The focus of the Sanhedrin's investigation is on the identity of Jesus. So they ask him, if you are the Christ, tell us. The Christ. In Hebrew or Aramaic, the word would be Messiah, Mashiach. They both mean anointed and refer to God's special chosen king who was prophesied about in the old scriptures. The the kings of the old Jewish monarchy were likewise anointed ones. Reflected in how when they were coronated, they were often anointed with oil. But the scriptures pointed to a singular anointed one, a Messiah, who would reign with righteousness and faithfulness and justice. And the Jews envisioned an amazing paradisiac, uh, I can't say that word, a paradise of a world when the Messiah would come. Why do I write words I can't pronounce? Um, Was Jesus this Messiah? Was Jesus that Christ? Is that who he claimed to be? This is complicated, though, by the fact that, as we've seen over and over in Luke's gospel, the Jewish people were often longing for a certain type of Christ, a certain type of Messiah. They were looking for a king who would lead the Israelites to freedom from Roman occupation. And their question, their question probably sounded a bit like this. If you are the Messiah, Jesus, just say so plainly. And Jesus' response is not plain. It's a bit enigmatic, but it's clear enough. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. The implication of what Jesus is saying here, and it's hard to communicate this in English, but the implication here is that Jesus has told them, and he has asked them, but they have not engaged him honestly to this point. And he knows that they're not going to start doing so now in this moment. If he tells them he's the Christ, and he has, they won't believe. And if he asks them clarifying questions or engages them in dialogue, and he has, they won't answer him honestly. So what's the point of this charade? More than that, Jesus seems to have avoided saying the plain words, I am am the Christ publicly because although he was the Christ of God, the people, like these religious leaders, misunderstood the role of Messiah. He wasn't going to be a military leader. He wasn't going to overthrow the Roman occupation. Rather than tell them he was the Christ, he more often showed them that he was the Christ and what type of Christ he was, what the true Messiah was really like. Instead, Jesus says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
That's quite a saying, and we need to break it down. We've, we've spoken a bit about this title, Son of Man, before in this series. And it's a title that Jesus uses frequently for himself. And to any Jewish person in the first century, it would have called to mind immediately a prophecy from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. There Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's peculiar about this dream or vision that Daniel has is it describes someone who looks like a human being, like a son of man, Kabar Anesh. But that person is described with the clouds of heaven. And the only other being in all of the Bible that's described in this way is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we see that this one like a son of man is given a kingdom, not just over the Jews, but over all the peoples of the earth, not just for a time, but for eternity. In other words, this is a figure who seems to be at once both divine and human. Now, although it's common for Christians today to immediately understand the Son of Man as the Messiah, and rightly so, and in fact, many Orthodox Jews would do the same today, it's not clear that in the first century Jews would have equated these two titles, Son of Man and Messiah. It's not that they rejected that interpretation. Certainly by the Middle Ages, that interpretation was common. But Jesus' inquisitors might not have made that connection. And so what Jesus is doing is sort of extending his identity extending the definition as if to say, I am the Christ, but I'm also the Son of Man. I am the divine figure that Daniel prophesied about who will reign forever over all the earth. That is the sort of Christ I am. And more than that, his words say that he will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In other words, the next time they see Jesus, he says will be when they appear before his court in judgment. When they are made to bow before him. And this prompts their response. Are you the son of God then? So they're deducing from his previous response that he's also claiming to be the son of God. We have a third title. Now, that's a a delicate matter, and and Jesus' response indicates that. He says, you say that I am. Now, that is an affirmative response. In In the idiom, the language of that day, Jesus is agreeing with them, but it's a qualified agreement. From a, a Jewish perspective and from a Christian perspective, of course, God does not have biological children. It's hard to know whether the, the Sanhedrin would have even thought in those terms. 
Once in John's biography of Jesus, so in the Gospel of John, um, John records that some of the Jews complained that Jesus was calling him the Son of God, and by doing so, he was making himself equal to God. And, and that might be the problem here, too. But in any case, by calling himself the Son of Man of Daniel 7, the Jews understood himself to be calling himself in some way divine, in some way connected to God that they weren't. And that was underpinning their question. And so Jesus is careful. He doesn't give a direct affirmation. He doesn't say, yes, of course I am. His response is, you say I am, which probably means something like this. What you've said is true, but I don't think you know what that really means. But all they heard was his admission. And in their minds, that's enough. It was blasphemous in their mind for this man, Jesus, to call himself God. And with that, they decide that they have everything they need. They're not interested in hearing Jesus teaching. They're not interested in learning what he means or who he is. They have found the basis to charge him, his identity. Messiah, son of man, son of God. So Jesus is the chosen king, the Messiah, but he didn't come to save a political people from a political threat. He came to save a spiritual people from a spiritual threat threat. That threat was not an external power like Rome. Instead, the threat was an internal power, our own sin, our own rebellion against God. But as Jesus was both human and divine, son of man and son of God, he can mediate for us. He stands in that gap between God and man, and he offers his life for sinners like us so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. As he hinted to his questioners, he will be the judge one day, and he will judge each of us. And those who have been made right with God by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and by trusting in him will receive forgiveness and eternal life. And those who will not have been made right with God by the blood of Jesus will be condemned to an eternal death and hell. For the Christian facing injustice, you must remember your identity, even as Jesus' trial called to mind Jesus identity. See, the Christian also is a son or daughter of God, called into God's family by a spiritual adoption. The Bible also teaches that we are in Christ if we are Christians. That, that is, we are in the Messiah. We are in the Son of Man. We are in the Son of God. Injustice is not much of a threat when we remember our identity. Injustice ultimately robs us of our possessions. It robs us of our dignity. It robs us of our honor. It robs us of our rights. But what are those things to a person whose identity is rooted in the Son of Man and Son of God? 
who sits enthroned at the right hand at the power of God. The missionary Jim Elliott, who was famously murdered by the Aka Indians of Ecuador in his attempt to bring them the gospel of Jesus, famously wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. On the beach of inland Ecuador, when he and his missionary companions were stabbed to death by innumerable spears, a tragic injustice was committed. He had certainly done nothing deserving of that death. But he understood that his identity was rooted in Jesus Christ. And so whatever injustice this world could do to him mattered not in that moment. If our identity is in Christ, we can lose our possessions. We can lose our dignity. We can lose our honor. We can lose our rights, and yet we still have so much more to gain. We will reign with the king when he comes with the clouds of heaven. And so knowing and remembering our identity and our connection to the Christ allows us to suffer injustice. Then the second trial commences. The Sanhedrin, having drawn their conclusion, take Jesus to the regional authority, Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the governor of the Roman territory of Judea. He was Rome's political representative in the region, and he maintained the Roman system. His headquarters was in Caesarea, a town on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But for such an important event, the Jewish festival of the Passover, he would have been in town to keep an eye on things. After all, hundreds of thousands of Jews are suddenly here in Jerusalem. So Pilate did not have a great reputation among the Jews. The historical records of Pilate are a little scattered. The ones that we do have, though, generally paint the picture of a guy who routinely got into problems with the people that he was supposed to govern. Routinely was upsetting them, routinely was doing things to offend them, routinely was doing things to put down their Jewishness. Not a popular man. But at the same time, he was the Roman law. And if the Jewish Sanhedrin wanted to do something about Jesus, they needed to go through him because evidently they wanted Jesus executed and they did not have that power. It had been granted it had to be granted by Roman authority. And so even though they probably were not big fans of Pontius, they go to him. And the charges against Jesus before Pilate have nothing to do with blasphemy. This is a very different trial. They are not interested in whether Jesus is the Son of God before Pilate. Because that wouldn't interest Pilate. Pilate would not be very concerned with little religious spats between Jews. Instead, they charge Jesus with misleading the people. Really, that charge is that he was leading the Jewish people to rebel against Rome. 
And supposedly that Jesus was telling people not to pay the tribute tax to Caesar. So they are under Roman occupation, and so they owe Caesar money from time to time. And thirdly, they say he calls himself the Christ, but they're not interested in the religious title. They say, and by the way, Pilate, Christ is a king. Well, that would be a threat. The first two charges are ridiculous. And it's interesting that Pilate completely ignores the first two charges. It might be that he already knows that that is nonsense. But that third charge interests him a little bit. Because if Jesus claims to be the Christ, and if the Christ is a type of Jewish king, well, then that might be a threat to the Roman king, the emperor Caesar, and then to their rule. So Pilate wants some clarification on this particular issue and asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? And again, we have a simple answer from Jesus. You have said so. And the meaning is, is similar to before. What you've said is, is literally true, Pilate, but it, it doesn't mean what they are insisting it means, and I don't think it means what you think you're asking me. And, and Pilate is a bit more nuanced and willing to hear Jesus on this and, and learning that Jesus believes he's the king of the Jews, but not in a way that is any threat to Rome's political power, Pilate confidently says, I don't find any guilt in this man. Jesus is innocent. Well, this leads the crowd to protest that he's been causing problems from, from Galilee in the north all the way down to Jerusalem. And this mention of Galilee captures Pilate's attention. Maybe he's looking to buy some time, or maybe he's looking to pass the buck. But technically, Herod Antipas, the Roman-installed client king, is in charge of Galilee. He also would be in town for the Passover feast, and so Pilate takes this opportunity to send Jesus to Herod. Interestingly, Jesus refuses to give any answer to Herod. Herod was not well-respected by the Jews either. He was partially Jewish, but he also was engaged, as we've seen, and you can look back in the, the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, he was engaged in a number of practices that made him unfriendly to the Jewish people. And more recently, we saw that he had John the Baptist, the prophet of the Jewish people, executed on the whims and wishes of his wife. In fact, he had John the Baptist executed because John the Baptist was annoying his wife because his wife had been married to his brother. And she divorced Herod's brother to be with Herod. And John the Baptist was kind of a stickler for morality and said, that displeases God, Herod. You cannot be with your brother's wife. That's not cool. And his wife is so upset about this that she wants him executed. And so Herod executes John the Baptist by removing his head. So this would not be a popular figure either, but this is the Roman authority that they have to deal with, and so they will deal with him. Jesus has no interest in communicating at all with Herod, and so he doesn't, and instead, uh, Herod and his bodyguards mock Jesus and send him back to Pilate. <clears throat> Whatever else Herod thought of Jesus, he didn't find any reason to hold him much less to execute him. And Pilate notes that. Pilate says, look, I'll give him a beating to satisfy you, 
but I've examined him. He's not guilty of anything. Herod sent him back to me. Herod didn't find anything. I'm going to let him go. He's innocent. But the religious leaders protest, and they lean on Pilate heavily. They demand that Pilate release to them a man surnamed Bar-Abbas. Now, Luke doesn't bother to explain it. Evidently, he believes that Theophilus and his readers know about this custom. But we know from elsewhere that Pontius Pilate, at least, had a custom where once a year he would release a prisoner at the festival as a token of goodwill to the people. He probably needed to do that because of all the things he did that really ticked them off. And the people are demanding that Pilate release a man from jail who had been part of an insurrection and who had committed a murder rather than allow Jesus to go. Pilate tries to release Jesus, but the crowd shall all the more crucify him. And a third time, Pilate makes clear what is at stake. Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. He was innocent. Funny way of showing innocence, though. Like, he's, he's innocent. He is completely innocent, so I'll beat him, and then I'm going to let him go. Such was the Roman system of justice. But the crowd persisted. And worn down, Pilate decided that it was best, perhaps for him, for Rome, to give in to the mob. He delivered Jesus over to their will. Three times, Jesus is proclaimed innocent by Pilate. And Herod implicitly finds him innocent. This is the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. This is the injustice with a capital I. The only truly innocent, truly perfect man to ever live was condemned to die a tortuous death. At least if an injustice is carried out against me, I have some level of recourse where I can say, I might not have deserved to be punished for this, but I certainly am not an innocent man. I certainly deserve punishment in some form or way for how I've lived my life imperfectly all these years. Any one of us who's faced with an injustice can at the very least Acknowledge the fact that we probably deserve to be punished for something. Maybe not for this, but for something. And that's what makes this trial and the events that happened subsequently so incalculably unjust. Because Jesus had lived a life of perfection and righteousness and sinlessness. And he's going to be condemned to die on a Roman cross, an instrument of torture designed to inflict suffering and slow, painful death. But yet, he knew he was innocent. And there's comfort in that. Christian, if you are a Christian... When you are dealt injustice, you can remember this. You are innocent. Now, that's a 
bold claim. After all, I've just said I'm, I'm guilty of innumerable sins and innumerable crimes for which I surely am deserving punishment. But what the gospel teaches us is that when we turn to Christ in faith and repent of our sins, our sins are removed from us and they are nailed to the body of Jesus on the cross. And his account becomes dirty and our account becomes clean. Of course, Jesus is so immaculately clean that the filth just washes away in his blood. And so for the Christian, we will stand before God in judgment one day, and what will happen is God will see the blood of Jesus Christ, and on the day of judgment, he will say, innocent. It's not that he looks at all of our deeds and says, you did a pretty good job there. You did the best you could do. No. He'll look at all your deeds, recognize that you don't measure up, recognize that you fall short, that you're a sinner, but then he sees Jesus, and Jesus' good is accounted on your record of debt. And so the verdict comes back not guilty innocent. What confidence that we can have in this life when we suffer injustices of so many sorts, whether we are unfairly terminated from a job or whether a friend or a family member holds a grudge against us unfairly or we are treated poorly on the count of our faith or because of our skin color, or because of the way we speak. Our world is full of injustices. They aren't right. They aren't fair. But whatever the world might say about us, we know that there is a God in heaven who looks upon us and says, not guilty. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And that doesn't immediately eliminate the injustice in this world right now, but it does give us the courage and the confidence and the peace of mind to endure whatever injustices this world throws at us. And if you are not a Christian, if you are not in Christ, that innocence can be placed on your account too so that on the day that you stand before God's throne in the judgment, you too can be declared not guilty before God if you place your trust in the work of Christ and turn from your old way of life. This passage ends with a, a somber note. 
that Pilate delivered Jesus over to their will. But that's not really the full picture, is it? We go back to Jesus' words at the end of chapter 22, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. We know that is where Jesus is. Not only did he go to the cross and die on that cross for the sins of sinful people, but he rose again from the dead because our sins couldn't hold him there. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he is awaiting his return to judge the living and the dead. He is enthroned in majesty and power and beginning to exercise his reign over all creation. He's in charge. And as we read this passage, despite the fact that he's going before the Sanhedrin, he goes before Pilate, and he goes before Herod Antipas, all of these rulers of the world that he knew, there's a sense in which you can't escape the fact that Jesus is the one who is in control throughout here. He is the one holding court. He is the one around whom all their attention is centered. He, it feels, as you read these words, that he is the one who's in charge, even though from a legal and human perspective, it might seem otherwise. And then we go back. If we remember, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus praying in the garden, in chapter 22, verse 42. It says, Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Pilate is handing Jesus over to the will of the Sanhedrin, the will of the Jewish leaders. But we know already that this ultimately is not their will. It is the Father's will. God is sovereign over this injustice. God is sovereign over this injustice. And God is sovereign over every injustice. God is in charge, even perhaps most especially when it feels like he's not. God is in control. And when we are facing injustice, whether small or great, whether our life is on the line like Rodney Reed or whether it is that cousin at Thanksgiving who has a beef against us. We can remember that it is Jesus who is sovereign. 
and he has a plan and a purpose for this injustice. In fact, for those who are in Christ, we have confidence that those injustices that the world means for our harm and for our evil are actually meant by God for our good. And so Paul can write in Romans 8 and 28 and following, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. For those who love God, all things work together for good. That means every act of justice that this world accidentally stumbles into and every injustice that is, if we are honest, far more common. They are ultimately designed for the good of God's people, His church. And so we can face the injustices that we are encountering in our lives, however great, however small they might seem. I doubt there's a person in this room who hasn't lost something. Had your dignity removed, have your rights stripped away, your physical nature in some way harmed, your emotional state somewhat harmed, Something stripped and taken from you, injustice done to you. We have all experienced it, and I cannot possibly imagine all the ways, but you know the ways that you have experienced injustice. But know that there is a God who is sovereign over that injustice, and he has a name. It is Jesus And if we are connected to Jesus by faith, then we have confidence that even the worst injustices that are committed against us are ultimately for our good and for His glory. So Christian, when you are facing injustice, and perhaps you are even facing injustice now, remember your identity is in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Remember that in the Messiah, you are innocent before the judgment of God. And remember that Jesus, the Messiah, is ultimately sovereign over even those injustices to bring about your good. That doesn't mean that we allow injustice to happen, but it means that when it is out of our control, we can have peace and confidence. Let's pray.